and welcome to the Metaspiritualist Metaspiritual Talk. I'm your host, Marla, and through today's journey, we'll be talking with Amber Dromgul. Amber is a doctoral candidate in the Departments of Religious Studies and African-American Studies at Yale University. Her dissertation, There's a Heaven Somewhere, Itinerancy, Intimacy, and Performance in the Lives of Gospel Blues Women from 1915 to 1983, highlights the experiences, friendships, and collaborations of Black Pentecostal women musicians. We hope that you enjoy this conversation today because I know I sure did. Take a listen. The Metaspiritualist is guided by the creator of the universe through prayer, meditation, and sound healing. So how you doing? Oh, I love your earrings too. You look so fabulous. Oh, thank you. Oh, um, the earrings actually came from one of my favorite artists, I believe you say her name, D. Lachey, um, but she does beautiful graphic artwork and all of that stuff. But she recently decided that she needed a new creative outlet. So she started making jewelry and all of her jewelry is beautiful. And I was like, so you just decided, oh, let me try something new. Yeah. Jewelry and started making these pieces. So, yeah. I I am um, my partner actually got me these for our anniversary this week. So I'm really Oh, congratulations. Thank you. How, how many years? Or uh, two. Two years? Two years. Still young in the game. Hey, me and my husband, uh, we've been married now for gosh. This year be eleven years. I knew as soon as you said, gosh, I was like, it's going to be some years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we've been married for 11 years. We've been together for 12 years, but we met 15 years ago. Wow. And he's from France and I'm from Arkansas. <laughs> and we met in Atlanta when Atlanta was popping back in the day. Yes. <laughs> and, um, I was like, I, I was scared. I was like, he couldn't really speak English that well when I met him. And so we went out on a few dates and then I was like, you know what? I think we should just be friends. Mm-hmm. And then um, we lost contact for like three years. And then he found me on Facebook. Wow. And so the rest was history. <laughs> oh, contemporary romance. like this. Is- and, girl, I could totally write a book. It could, it could be, it could be a, a hopeless romantic story that, that, ended with and they lived happily ever after <laughs> have a sauna. and we now have a sauna <laughs> you just gotta throw that in there in the end for me and they lived happily ever after with their sauna <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is when we were married when we first got married we went to those little like home and garden um shows at the convention mm-hmm. center and we this was like maybe about a year before we actually got the uh, moved into our uh, first house. Mm-hmm. And um, I told him, I said, these saunas are nice. We need to get one in our house. And he was like, yeah, we should get one out of the nine years we lived in our first home. We never got one. And so when we saw this house and we, um, you know, the, put in our offer, they accepted our offer. We started negotiating, negotiating the price and everything. Um, we asked the owners if they would be willing to throw the sauna into the deal, and they did. Oh! 
So, but that was the only thing that they did good. (laughs) (laughs) Everything else has been crazy. (laughs) Everything else was a mess, but we got the fun. Yes, yes. So, Amber, I am so happy that you... (laughs) answered the call to be on the meta spiritualist. Thank you so much. Um, tell my audience, like, you know, what it is that you do and, and, um, where you're at right now, like your, your background looks a little different. It's very, um, school ish. I'm actually in new Haven, Connecticut right now working on my doctorate. So I'm in the hall of graduate studies because they have really great Wi-Fi. So I was like, let me bring my stuff down here. So we can have a nice, good, um, Wi-Fi running for this podcast. But no, I am, of course, a doctoral student in uh, the program, the combined program of African-American studies and religious studies. At Yale, I study Black women musicians that come out of spiritual backgrounds, spiritual broadly construed. I am um, also do consulting work on the side, a little artistry, a little music on the side. But, you know, for the most part, I, I see myself as a scholar of contemporary and mid 20th century black women musicians. Nice. Nice. So my first question is what was your experience growing up in the Kojic church? Because you've mentioned that um, in the the presentation that I actually first saw you in Mm -hmm. uh, with UCR's uh, Wednesdays at noon. And I was very intrigued because I, I grew up Southern Baptist, Mm -hmm. but I have friends from all different, you know, arms of the Protestant church, but the Kojic church was one that, you know, when my mom married into, it was like, you can't wear this, you can't do this. So I want to know what your experience was. Yeah. So the first thing I'll say is that I didn't grow up necessarily Kojic. I grew up what we refer to as Kojic adjacent, which is pretty much churches that are offshoots of the broader Kojic denomination. So my pastors, they're actually identical twins. So my pastors um, were raised Kojic and for one reason or another, ended up leaving the church, starting their own church, rebranded themselves as non-denominational and or Pentecostal. But the meats of their doctrine and theologies are still very much Kojic. So it's very much, we're not necessarily in the denomination, denomination, but we are definitely of the denomination. Like very much the practices are similar. And I will say, growing up with my particular background, and apologies for the noise in the background, um, but uh, growing up in my particular background, I remember there was a lot of music and art in my church. And mm-hmm. this comes from the fact that my pastor actually was a um theater person. I think he went to college for theater and playwriting. So there were a lot of huge theatrical productions of professional quality, like packed out. Sometimes they would perform at Tennessee Performing Arts Center instead Mm -hmm. of in the church, which is like Tennessee's or Nashville's big um, stage for theatrical productions. So a lot of art, my choir, the senior choir has a Grammy nominated album that CC Winans produced. So it's very much filled with color and music and art and vibrancy on one hand mm-hmm. and then on the other hand very strict ideas about masculinity and femininity that are coming out of the purity culture very strict ideas about what you should wear how women should act what you should and shouldn't do very strict ideas about gender presentation about sexuality and sexual presentation Mm-hmm. And um, some really interesting doctrinal and theological beliefs that after 
I think three years of therapy now, I can now pinpoint as the root of, of a very toxic uh, propensity towards perfectionism in my life. Um, you know, mm. the whole without spot or wrinkle, you yes. have to be perfect for when Christ comes back, actually impacted my life in other and various ways that weren't necessarily good um, mm. for making me a holistic or well-being. So on the one hand, it's interesting. You have all of this freedom and art and flexibility and creativity balanced by the other end, which is very stringent and very, um, very binary based in a yeah. in a destructive way at times. Yes, yes. That's that's interesting that you put it that way, because um, I remember my first interaction with being turned away at the doors of the church. <laughs> I was working um, in a daycare and wearing scrubs was our uniform. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was a revival and I was like, I'm going to the revival. So I left straight from work and went straight to the church and was turned away because I didn't have on a skirt. And I was like, oh, y'all ain't going to see me up at this church no more. <laughs> like, like, I'm I'm coming here like broken. Like, I had a rough day. I need a revival, you know? <laughs> and I can't come because of this skirt. No, I, it, I believe it. Um, I remember one particular story I've shared before, but I was supposed to do some type of presentation. I don't know if I was supposed to do the announcement or if I was supposed to sing something where I was supposed to be on the main stage and it was supposed to be youth Sunday. And I had on my, like my skinny jeans, but with a longer shirt that kind of covered up a little bit. And I was like, you know, we can wear jeans. It's youth Sunday. It's kind of relaxed. Mm-hmm. And I was pulled aside by the first lady of the church and was like, you know, what you're wearing is inappropriate. We can't have you go on stage like that. Me and my mom actually switched clothes. Like me and my mom, so my mom had on a flowy dress. We switched clothes so I could wear the flowy dress. She put on my skinny jeans so that I can get on stage. Wow. I remember those moments. I remember moments like having the lap scarf, making yes. sure you weren't showing too much of your leg. And that also has to do a lot with body image and and presentation as well and absolutely uh, in ways that are connected to sexuality because i remember i always grew up thick always always had thighs always had boobs always had breasts it was gonna be there but Mm -hmm. i remember some of my thinner counterparts would wear things and it would be fine yeah and Um, and you wear the same thing it just in a different at a different and i get people to the side for it yes yeah yeah. yeah, that's interesting because, um, you know, what did that do to your like when you when you had to switch clothes with your mom? Mm-hmm. Like, how was your energy in that moment? Like, were you able to fully like be in the moment? And like, that was all you were thinking about, wasn't it? Yes, I cried like I cried, cried when she, when the first lady pulled me aside because I was like, I really thought it would be OK. Because you Sunday, they said that we could dress however we wanted. And I, I had been so excited because I was one of the kids who grew up in church was in church all day, was in choir and was a dancer and was all of these things. One of the good girls, quote mm-hmm. unquote. So it hurt me so bad to think that I was doing what was right and to still be chastised for it. Mm-hmm. I think I cried, like completely broke down. And then after me and my mom switched clothes, kind of got myself together enough to go on stage with high energy, which mm-hmm. is kind of an interesting way of masking what's going on and why churches end up getting away with a lot of stuff because mm-hmm. you're taught to mask especially if you're somebody that's visible. Okay. I'll put my, let me put my stuff to the side. Let me put my stuff in the trunk and then I'll go on stage and I'll sing or I'll act 
I'll present, I'll perform um, so that nobody knows what was wrong. But I was, it was a really traumatic moment for me. It was not, it was not good at all. Um, and for the rest of the day, even the fact that I can recount that story in detail now, it's more than maybe 15 years later. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, a, I, yeah. It left, it left an impression, like a very bad taste in your mouth, you know, and, and it goes on constantly. So, yeah. Yeah. So my next question is, what would you say your current faith walk is? Uh. Oh, man. So I would say in this shout out to one of my mentors, favorite people, Clarence Hardy, um, who used to be my professor. And the first time he taught me, he was like, you know, on most days I consider myself a Christian, but like, don't push me. Like, (laughs) Don't push me. Um, On most days, I still consider myself a Christian, though some of my beliefs or particularly some of the beliefs that I have let go would likely lend themselves to people that I grew up with are people that I was formerly acquainted with believing that I am not as such or should not identify as such. Um, but I still mostly identify as a Christian, but I also believe that my faith is capacious enough and porous enough to embrace some other cultural practices and particularly of the African diasporic persuasion um, mm-hmm. and to recognize how those practices are recognizable in the traditions that I grew up in, even if they don't admit as such. So I think maybe I'm a flexible Christian. I'm not. (laughs) Um, All I know is that my Christianity is not closed off to other experiences and other spiritualities that may positively impact my life. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And I love how you broke that down because it's it's almost as if when you start to like understand where our roots come from and you mm-hmm. do the research and you you kind of are like hey like this makes sense why we're doing things this way mm-hmm. as we're worshiping god um but then you have the 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 bible thumpers who be like no you're worshiping the devil and it's like no it's not that at all <laughs> Which is amazing. It's incredible to me for a couple of reasons. The first being that the Bible itself is also capacious. Often what people interpret out of it says more about what they're leaning towards than it does about what's in the Bible, mm-hmm. because it literally use it to justify anything. I remember my first, because I, I have a degree in religious studies and also a master's of arts and religion. And you have to take biblical studies classes. And these are not Bible studies. These are not like church Bible studies. These are the Bible as a piece of literature, the Mm -hmm. Bible as something that is also a historical document set in a particular context, place and time. And Mm -hmm. I remember I took a class with Carolyn Sharp and we were learning about Ezekiel. I think we were doing Ezekiel in um, our our Old Testament class. And the amount of abuse and rape and pillaging that goes on, particularly against women in that book, I have not opened it back up. That I remember taking a Job class. And when you have to read all of those chapters verse like the the one to two chapters of the narrative, yeah. changes your opinion on some things. Right. Um, so it's 
the Bible thumpers are interesting because it shows me that you don't necessarily know as much as you think you know about the context and and the relations between Christianity and other religions that happen at the same time as well. And then for my for my black folks who lead that way too, um, I have a lot of friends now who are. Vodun scholars, people that are also practitioners of Vodun or Vodou. Um, and a lot of those practices, especially if you grew up Pentecostal like me, overlap. Yes. So much overlap. Symbolism of white, there's overlap. The amount of um, the amount of spiritual possession. We yes. won't call it spiritual possession. We'll call it being taken with the Holy Ghost yes. or being slain. But the the ideas of spiritual possession, they are all over various African diasporic practices. Yes. So I think what you hold on to is your decision. Is <laughs> your decision. But I wouldn't necessarily put it on what's right or wrong from either a biblical or cultural perspective because it's just too much space for that. Yeah, yeah. No, I I get it. Oh my gosh. It's interesting that you even bring up the the part of spiritual possession in mm-hmm. the sense of like the Holy Ghost. I remember um when I was 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, and I was living on the campus of uh, Arkansas State University at the mm-hmm. time. And I went to church and um this was before I knew you had to be watchful of who you let lay hands on you. And so when I went to this church, I allowed for the pastor to anoint me with um, oil. Mm -hmm. And then he laid hands on me and kind of forced me down to the floor. Like it was like, everybody was falling out. I was like, okay, I'll just fall out too. (laughs) (laughs) But But what ended up happening was I actually had a, experience a spiritual experience and I could not explain it. It it happened on over a three day period. Mm-hmm. And um we can we can talk about that all day. But mm-hmm. after that, my friend who actually brought me to that church um wanted me to come back. And I felt like that was not the church for me. That's mm-hmm. not where I believed I was supposed to go. Mm-hmm. And so when I ended up in a church, I felt that this was the church that I was supposed to be at. So mm-hmm. I joined, I got baptized in that church and I started being really active in that church. Mm-hmm. And um, when my friend came back to me one, like several weeks later, he was like, why didn't you come back to my church? And I was like, well, I didn't feel led to, to come there. Mm-hmm. And he made a comment about like the pastor being upset that some of the people didn't from that experience, like from that revival or whatever, um, didn't come back to that church. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, like, I see where this is going, you know? And it's interesting because people really like, they were falling out speaking in tongues, which is a, a question I want to ask you about, you know, why, why do the Kojic church in particular Pentecostal churches, why do they tarry? to speak in tongues or tarry for the Holy ghost. My goodness. That is something that's really steeped in steeped in broader cultural practices. Um, but the idea of having to be consecrated, the idea of a, a ritual learning practice in order to be able to possess certain spiritual qualities mm-hmm. is something that goes into various African diasporic traditions. Like we can talk about, of course, Haitian Vodou. We can talk about um, Hoodoo practices. We can talk about 
Santeria, we can talk about so many broader, what's broader West African practices that do a similar, you go away for a time or you tarry for a time, or you have to do these set of things to be able or seen as someone who can um, indulge in certain practices. It's something that's historical far and beyond um, Afro-Protestant church practices. But I know for me as somebody who had the experience of tarrying growing up several times. They would shut you in for days <laughs> sometimes um, to tarry and do those things. I think it has something to do with the, the veneration of having certain practices. And, and for Pentecostals in particular, um, for people that believe that speaking in tongues is something that is part and partial to their faith walk, and their belief system is something that you have to be able to do in order to continue um, along your faith journey. Like it's a necessary step um, mm -hmm. in your belief system yeah. as, a, as a Christian bred out of that particular tradition. So speaking in tongues becomes important. Being seen as somebody that has a very big spiritual presence, I think is the best way that I can put it, or somebody mm -hmm. that is filled with the Holy Ghost in a palpable way becomes important in those spaces and important enough to where you wait for it and you tarry for it. And the tearing also is something that is connected to generational, part particularly matrilineal lines. It's oftentimes women that are taking over or in control of the tearing services. So mm -hmm. there's a lot going on, but a lot culturally belief-wise and particularly in the Pentecostal tradition that happens with faith and speaking in tongues and being slain as, as, a, as a necessary step in your spiritual formation. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the people who necessarily don't, um, they don't receive the gift of speaking in tongues? Like, does mm -hmm. that make them any less? you know, spiritual than the next person in the church? Yeah, I can answer that. <laughs> so in one, it, so it, the first answer is it depends on the tradition because some traditions don't necessarily see speaking and speaking in tongues as necessary for being um, converted or seen as a Christian in any particular way. Some, some different traditions are like, you could have a multitude of spiritual gifts that don't necessarily have to be speaking tongues in particular, but there are other churches where there is a hierarchy and speaking in tongues is pretty high on that hierarchy of being seen as somebody that is Holy Ghost filled, that um, has a strong belief and that is capable of leading others in their belief systems as well. So it depends on where you are. But I will say, as far as the hierarchy goes, having been raised in a church where it was pretty important for you to be able to do that as proof mm -hmm. of your faith, whew, for the people that cannot, some fake it. Some fake it or some decide to just let it go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I've, I I've learned to let it go. People, <laughs> I think a lot more people than would like to admit end up faking it, especially if you're a kid, because a lot of times those, okay, we're going to learn to speak in tongues. We're going to be here. Just start by saying, Jesus, 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 and then it'll just flow. Uh -huh. um, a lot of 
kids will end up faking it just to be done with it because you don't want to be at the altar forever. You don't want to be the last person at the altar. You don't want to be the person that doesn't accept it. Um, So there are people that have real experiences. Um, I've had real experiences. There are people that don't and choose to just continue on their way. But there are also those that just want to be a part and don't want to feel left out, which is normal um, that know how to kind of fake the funk. And if you've been in a space for any certain amount of time, you you know how to fake the funk. Like, you know how to play and act like you know what you're doing, even if you don't necessarily believe that it's authentic. Yeah. Do you think that once uh, certain individuals mainly, and I'm going to say mainly pastors (laughs) who um, receive the gift of speaking in tongues and they're placed on that hierarchical level of um you know being at the summit basically of their yeah. of their uh faith walk do you think that ego comes in and plays a very stringent role well yes i want to talk about this because i actually saw something on twitter i don't okay. know if candace bimbo I think Candace Bimbo tweeted it. She had been talking to somebody and apparently there was a study that I have not. Let me put the asterisk there. I have not looked at it myself as a scholar. I need to say that. So people aren't like, oh, she's pulling stuff up that she hasn't necessarily um, completely uh, vetted out. But Mm -hmm. it was an interesting conversation because apparently there's some connection to be made between people that are raised in ministry, particularly in seminaries, Mm -hmm. um, to starting to develop narcissistic traits uh, because of the access to power that that necessarily breeds. So do I believe that ego starts to come into play? Yes. And I've seen it. (laughs) Yes. And I've seen it because when you are put, literally put on a pedestal, when you are seen, your gifts are seen as better Uh, more effective than other people's and people will follow you into that. It's very difficult to not have your ego inflated for such reasons. And then you bring the whole idea of that. This is a God thing, that this is a spiritual thing into play as well. Absolutely. This is not to say that everybody is like this. I know I have, I went to seminary. I have a lot of brilliant minister friends that are doing excellent work, really social, social justice oriented that are interested in loving on black people and, and being a vessel for people to be able to do what they need to do and be well. But there are so many others whose ego is so wrapped up in title, um, is so wrapped up in a propensity towards God or a perceived connection to God that's bigger and better than everybody else's that it, it can end up being harmful. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Like that, that was deep right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you mentioned going to seminary school and, yeah. um, you know, reading the Bible as a literary piece of work mm-hmm. and from a historical perspective. Yeah. Um, what would you say to those who go to seminary? They uncover deeper truths but mm-hmm. they continue to mask them or, you know, gloss over them to keep people following them. Yeah. Um, I would say, and I'm going to borrow this from Disha Filial, who 
recently wrote the book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, won all of these awards. It's a brilliant book. Everybody should read it, particularly those raised in Afro-Protestant spaces. I yeah, promise. I have to get that book. <laughs> you're going to put aside four hours. You're going to finish it in one sitting. You're not going to put it down. Okay. Um, but I had a discussion with her. I'm writing an article about her. I had a, a discussion. And she said, it's important for people to know that you can keep your faith even if you have to set aside harmful beliefs. Like your mm-hmm. faith is your faith. Your faith is something that you can walk through, that you can construct, that can really be the essence of the things that you want out of life and your spirituality. And if that means that you need to put aside some tendencies that are harmful, that do not serve you, then that's absolutely fine. And it's still your faith. Mm-hmm. But you really have to decide that that's what you want. I also think of um, Yvette Flunder. I remember uh, while I was in seminary, she came and talked to us. Yvette Flunder um, is a bishop. She is a bishop. She's also a queer woman. She grew up singing gospel music. Um, She is the voice on, I'm not going to remember it right now, which is terrible. But she is, just know that she's the voice on um, a lot, a very, very, very popular song that I will, if I remember it, I'll, I'll put circle it back in. to it. Okay. I'll go back to it. Um, but I remember her sharing her story of, um, talking to her mom about her sexuality. She had been raised Kojic, um, and say, you know, mom, I am, I am queer. I am gay as a lesbian. I am a, this is the person that I love and her mom having to come to terms with it. And her mom sharing, Hey, I need some time because if, what you say is right, then that means that everything that I've believed my entire life is wrong. Mm -hmm. And I would feel foolish for that. So I want to be really sensitive to the fact that a lot of people's identities are wrapped up in these beliefs, right? But Mm -hmm. I also want people to know that their identities do not have to be wrapped up in their beliefs and they can extract some in order to live better, in order to live well without shame and to live a free life. Oh, wow. That's, that's powerful. To be honest, like, I remember, um, you know, going in and researching the tarot and, um, you know, starting to look at oracle cards and, and going to meditate with Buddhist monks and things like that. I felt like everything that I had known growing up was wrong. And it, and it it made me angry. I'm like, what in the world is going on? Like, how am I going to come back from this? You know, like, and, and so when you think about people who come out to their loved ones who have this very deep rooted belief of, you know, what's right and what's wrong, it's, it's really hard. You know, I think about the, the, the phrase, you know, you can't teach a dog new tricks, but really you can. Yes. And I think that the dog, the older dogs that don't want to learn the new tricks are the fools. They be, they then become the fools, you mm-hmm. know, but that's, oh, wow. That's interesting. Wow. It's something that I've had to come to terms with as well, particularly going to therapy to kind of work out some mm-hmm. of the things because this is also a tradition that I'm raised in. So the stuff doesn't get removed quickly. It's not Absolutely. like I woke up one day and was like, all right, all of the homophobia, sexism, misogyny, I can just take it off. It's work that I had to, that I'm still working towards. Mm-hmm. But something that I believe is worth it to be able to live 
a better life. And the song is, I believe, thank you, Lord. Tragedies are commonplace. Oh, that's my song. Yes. All and kinds of me. diseases. People are yes. slipping away. That's my jam. <laughs> She's the voice on that. Okay. Um, and he talks, she talks a lot about that experience and choosing herself and choosing her particular walk. Um, and I think it's so powerful but something to be said for other people who may or may not be struggling with different belief systems. And of course, like I went through this, I'm not speaking from any high pedestal. I went through this in college when I started taking those uh, biblical studies class and also African-American religion classes and saw my world tilting. Mm -hmm. And then black lives matter happened, which was really the catalyst for it to just flip all the way on over. Wow, You just gave me the chills, girl. Because at this point, can I share that in college, I got to college, went to Oberlin College, which for those who are unfamiliar, is one of the most progressive liberal colleges in the country. Uh, It just is. So here I am, this Southern um, girl raised relatively conservatively. And I'm like, oh, I'm going home. Oh, y'all going to hell. Y'all are doing terrible things. Mama, come get me. Why did you let me come to this? Wow. And as I'm there, I, I first look for the evangelical fellowship, get involved. InterVarsity is the big one and get involved. I was singing and the worship team, directing the worship team, leading a Bible study. I was being like headhunted by higher ups um, in InterVarsity to like go into the ministry. Mm-hmm. Black Mike Brown and the non-indictment of his murderer happened and There was a lot of other stuff that was causing me to question what I had believed my entire life. But Mm -hmm. the idea that I looked around and there was no instruction from any of my faith walk on what to do and how to proceed in light of this injustice that I had just seen. Mm -hmm. There wasn't everybody was, oh, you know, we we sit back. We pray. Mm -hmm. Don't necessarily get involved. But our stuff is in heaven. We don't deal with this earthly stuff. Our stuff is in heaven. And I remember Tamir Rice happens shortly after, and I'm in Ohio. I'm 30 minutes outside of Cleveland Mm -hmm. when Tamir Rice happens. So I am going to um, Cleveland with the Black Student Union and laying on the ground and protesting and organizing and being looked at by not only my home church, but also the fellowship that I'm involved with as somebody who's doing something that's not necessarily what we Christians are supposed to do. And that really rattled me and was the catalyst for having to really construct an entirely different faith based on what I believed as a Black woman, as a queer affirming woman, as Mm -hmm. somebody who needs to be able to advocate for, listen to, and be in real relationship and community with the very people that I had been taught were less than, were sinful. I had to rearrange my mind and how I thought in order to be able to do the work that I knew I was called to do. And that meant becoming estranged from a lot of the beliefs that I had been taught. And because of that, estranged from some of the people who had been the people that influenced them. Wow. Wow. That's powerful, Amber. Wow. Okay. Oh, that was deep. <laughs> that was even deeper than the last. <laughs> the last. <laughs> Let me come back to the shallow end. Oh, Lord. You know, no, it's, it's good because I, I really feel like it's really good 
to go there. Like we have to be open enough to go to the deep parts of spirituality and religion because without uncovering all the deep, dark secrets, we can't ever heal. And I think that's what people today are in desperate need of. They need that healing. Mm -hmm. And I think you speaking about what the, what the Kojic church, what the, what the Christian Protestant church in general has gone through for centuries and centuries and people just continue to bury these secrets down. It's not helping people. It's not liberating people. And, you know, I think about when Jesus went down to set the captives free Mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, if Jesus went down into hell, this, and now what I'm learning is that really hell can be where you are right now. You know, hell and heaven are what you make of it right now. If we live in the now, we can experience either or. Mm -hmm. And so when, when Jesus went down into hell to set the captives free, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And without speaking the truth, because you, you do have those, the different perspectives of truth. You have one person sees it one way, their perspective may be the truth, but it's not necessarily true for the next person, but then there's the real truth that lies right in the middle. And when you look at it from a metaphysical perspective, you can take away all the fluff, get down to the root, pluck mm-hmm. out the, the toxic stuff and, and allow for your, your spirituality, your body, your mental, everything begins to heal. And that's what we desperately need right now. Yeah. But unfortunately, being involved in certain faith communities mm-hmm. necessitates the covering up um, and the wounding and the harm that caused. So it's, it's difficult for some to say, OK, I recognize this is wrong, but to heal um, and to, ex- to heal means to expose as well. You can't, you can't start the process of healing without exposing to light and oxygen and sun. Um, but to do that also may necessitate a break. And I think that's hard for a lot of people to reckon with. It's heavy. Like mm-hmm. I thought, it, this does not come without a cost. It's not as easy again as just kind of skipping off into the sunset. I have people that I considered family who at one point or another saw me as demonic, like saw me as very much heretical. This stuff is heavy. It comes at a cost. It comes, um, you have to give something, but are you willing to give something up in order to be free? Exactly. Um, in order to live better, um, in order to, for your walk and your life and your faith to really align with who you are as a person and the light that you want to shed in the world. Cause my whole thing is that I don't necessarily care what you believe or what your practices are, as long as they're not harming others. Okay. And fortunately, particularly in my tradition, a lot of the beliefs that people hold harm others. Absolutely. I have to figure out how to reckon with that and how to disentangle myself from that while still holding on to the belief to the beliefs and the faiths that I that I wanted to maintain and turn to. Yeah. But it's difficult. But I always 
always still want to give a nod to um, people that are within the tradition that are still doing very good work. But yes. I don't want to be all like doom and gloom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm right there with you. No, there's my um, friends. Uh, this is uh, Gabby and Andrew of the Double Love Experience in New York and Brooklyn. They're doing fantastic work. Um, amazing work around social justice, mental health awareness, um, really building community. Um, they are incredible people that I would trust with my heart and my soul. Um, there's, of course, the First Corinthian Church um, in Harlem and my friend Heaven, who's doing amazing community justice work there. So there are spaces, if people want them, that are trying their best to uproot very harmful practices um, of Christian Protestantism, but they have to be sought out. And it's not necessarily the broad culture right now. I want to be honest about that. Like it is not, even though I want to say there are some good people that are trying to overturn and uplift and change mainstream Christian Protestant culture still has the tendency to be harmful Mm -hmm. um, to people that they believe are less than are sinful are, um, Ne- not necessarily on the straight and narrow on the straight and narrow <laughs> path yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's tough yes it's, it's tough. tough it's so tough it's so tough it's it's taken me a long time to really um feel comfortable in my own skin about what I believe in yeah. you know um I I really enjoy meditating I really enjoy I love reading the bible Mm-hmm. And now that I'm looking at it from a metaphysical perspective, it has really changed the way I look at life yes. and, and what I want to leave for my children and how I can help my children um, avoid the traumas that I went through, yes. you know, breaking the cycle, the mm-hmm. generational curses, so to speak of lack and, you know, feeling less than like, no empower them our children are our future for real and if we really believe that we would do everything in our power to like give them the tools the knowledge and the resources that they need to do great work absolutely i think yeah the best thing that could have happened probably for my faith walk as an adult Mm -hmm. was being exposed to black feminist and womanist traditions that taught me that I could look to other works besides the Bible um, as sacred, as things that could influence my faith and spirituality and my walk of life. Like mm-hmm. I can't read Toni Morrison's Paradise or Beloved without getting chills or Alice Walker's The Color Purple mm-hmm. um, without really seeing sacred and sanctity in a way that uplifts my experience, particularly as a black woman. Yes. Um, so I think those are outside of just learning and being exposed to other faith, faith practices and being exposed to um, ways that uh, hermeneutical practices that I can practice for biblical interpretation so that mm-hmm. I can really develop my own ideas um, about what I want to take sacred, but also being able to look outside at different artistic practices at music that's not necessarily considered sacred in a traditional sense at literature um, and really see it as something that it can influence my life and my spirituality in much the same or even more influential ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
That was great. Oh my gosh. But I, I really wanna I really wanna get to the the um your work and your research on uh black women and spiritual music. Mm-hmm. Um so <laughs> let's go ahead and, and shift to that real quick because I don't want I don't want this hour to go by and we not talk about that too. Um so why why do you believe that the church kept women in the background as it relates to spiritual music? Yeah, I think. I think it might be a little bit more complicated than saying that the church just left women in the background, because, of course, at any at many turns, you can see women in the forefront, whether they be singing or making music. What I do believe is that the church engaged in some harmful patriarchal practices um, and narratives that say men are the intellect. And women are the body and the emotion. And when we think about music, that means men are what we call the great composer narrative. Men are the writers, the composers, the people behind that are really doing the real work. Women are the singers, the people that aren't necessarily doing what we consider real intellectual work. That's just emotional Mm -hmm. labor. And my job, one of my jobs in my scholarship is to mess that whole binary up. Mm. Um, this whole binary around intellectualism that's steeped in sexism, um, that's steeped in really problematic issues about uh, gender presentation. So I think one way is that for music and for artists, women were often seen as incapable of doing some of the work that's seen as more intellectually um, pressing and stringent, which mm-hmm. is a lie, two lies in there. One that that composing is any more intellectually demanding than singing or, or performing music. That's a lie. And the other lie being that women did not compose music. Um, so of course there have been people that have already excavated or written about black women composers in, in gospel music and in spiritual music. I think about, um, Eileen Southern, um, uh, in particular, her musical Black Americans and talking about Lucy Campbell, who it was a very prolific hymn writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about, of course, now um, Maddie Moss Clark is starting to get some of her due as somebody who was really instructional in the body, really behind the Clark sisters in the fame um, and, and their performance and genius. Mm -hmm. as well but there's so much more work to be done and for me my work kind of lies on the edges like (laughs) on the edges on the boundaries because while there's been work done on women that have institutionally been pushed to the background and wanting to be like foregrounded and brought up I'm looking at the women who at some point decided that they wanted to extract themselves from Afro-Protestant institutions. Mm-hmm. Decided, the women I look at, two of them leave because their minister husbands are abusive and it's dangerous for them to say in those spaces and how they are unremembered or disremembered because of that leaving. Because if there's not an institution to back your story, it's a lot harder for your story to get out. It's a lot harder for you to be legible and recognizable in music history, in, in Afro-Protestant history, in gospel music history in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm dealing with women. The two who are friends that I like to talk about a lot are Roxy Moore, who was a composer, and her best friend Rosetta Tharp, who is now getting a lot of acclaim thanks to the work of Gail Walsh, um, who wrote the book on her, who now she's been recently um inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, seen as the godmother of rock and roll. But that's only recently. Mm-hmm. Um, because she didn't fit into a nice clean box, 
a lot of her work went unrecognized for a long time and she didn't get the just due that she deserved. So I'm dealing with, of course, women early to mid 20th century who are kind of tap dancing on that line, on that is she, isn't she, is she singing gospel music? Is she not singing gospel music? Does it even count? Is she singing at a club? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. I like dealing with those women because it messes up. I like mess really is the issue. (laughs) But all of these binaries that people like to put in place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the real work um, begins to happen at the at the place where binaries begin to disintegrate. Right, right, right. You know, you you said something interesting about um, the women who are like teetering on the edge, Mm -hmm. like whether it's it's gospel music, whether it's considered gospel music or whether it's considered secular music. Mm -hmm. And so my next question would be. what do you think about secular music being used as a spiritual like tool, basically? Mm -hmm. Like, why do you think music is connected to spirituality and religion? (laughs) That is a loaded question, but give it to me, girl. (laughs) I'm I'm a trap. Um, So the first thing that comes to mind is that particularly when dealing with black musics, which is what I'm a scholar of, the line between sacred and secular doesn't necessarily exist because the influence in both spaces have already always overlapped, mm-hmm. always, always overlapped. You have people in um, so-called sacred traditions that are learning guitar techniques from blues singers. You've got blues singers who grew up in church that know how to do some of that work. So that idea of a separation in utility um, and and, in performance between those two worlds is really difficult to distinguish Mm -hmm. um, because Black music traditions, though there are various traditions, it's not monolithic, it's not all the same. They are cross-pollinating all of the time. Yeah, not something that just started now or in the 90s or in the 80s. It's something that's been happening for centuries. And if I were to. And it's 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 something that had been happening post enslavement um, prior to us even setting on the continent. So it's something that very difficult to pinpoint when people want to like, oh, you know, that sacred that sacred music sounds too secular. That secular music sounds too sacred. (sighs) Like it doesn't really work in that fashion. As far as music, why it's so influential um, to spirituality in spiritual settings. For me, I'm gonna get real churchy for a second. For Come on, girl, like, give it to us. You know, in sacred settings, music is meant to make you feel something. I think art, the way that art allows people to express, will always be different. Um, than other methods of knowledge acquisition. So Mm -hmm. whether it's music, whether it's dancing, whether it's visual arts, there's something that opens you up to being able to experience uh, different types of emotions, feelings, um, the boundaries between spiritual realities that don't necessarily happen elsewhere. So Mm -hmm. I think our music is made to make us feel something for that reason. And why I also think that there are sacred and spiritual musics that aren't necessarily bound to institutions, because if the thing that makes you feel is in the music itself, then it doesn't necessarily matter where it's being performed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that answers it, but I think music makes you feel something in particular. Um, if done a certain way that wouldn't necessarily be able or easily experienced in uh, by other means. Yeah. And I think that's important and why it's an important tool for being used in these types of spaces. Mm-hmm. I remember when I lived in Cincinnati, I was singing on a praise team with a, um, a gentleman. We were at a non-denominational church mm-hmm. and he was playing the piano. And one day we were rehearsing and, and we started talking about music and, and things like that. And um, he had mentioned, you, you know, the song uh, Open the Floodgates of Heaven uh, mm-hmm. by Paul, Paul Morton, I believe. Yeah. Um, my friend had mentioned that when Paul was going to release that song, the what he said <laughs> was that Prince did not want him. Prince had warned him, don't release that song. And so after he released the song, I believe that's when Katrina happened. And so it was like, it was almost as if, you know, he had a warning not to do it because when Prince wrote the song, like he, Paul took the music of that um, composition basically and redid it to fit the gospel narrative. Mm -hmm. And so it brought a, it brought with it some consequences. That's what Prince was trying to tell him. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when my friend said that, I was like, I don't believe that. (laughs) Like, but then I started thinking about it a little bit more. And I was like, you know, you think about all the gospel artists that take, so-called secular music and flip it but when you sing it you still go back to the original like you go back to how you felt when you were up in the club and doing certain things you know so what do you say about something like that I think well first I'll go back to the idea that there's always been cross-pollination between different genres Mm -hmm. Um, always adapting from different spaces Um, It's not a contemporary thing. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it always has consequences because if if that were the case, what of the person that never heard whatever song or genre that was, and they're just experiencing it in the context that they're experiencing it in. It's not a, that truth ends up being a little bit more subjective, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, than uh, than a lot of people would admit to. But I would also say, I recently this morning had a Twitter exchange with some friends. I have a, a friend named Amina who just graduated from Yale Divinity School with her MDiv, brilliant, that was talking about how the Bible itself has a tendency to be erotic and kinky. Christianity, erotic and kinky in a lot of ways. And when you think about the music and some of the lyrics um, and some of the sounds and emotions that are put into those lyrics and performed, Um, In church spaces, Mm -hmm. it's not too much of a hop, skip and a jump away from ideas or feelings that you are produced in club settings or club music either. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's more to say that they are closer than people like to admit that it is to say that that gospel artists are doing something wrong by utilizing songs that are made for other spaces and, and making them into spiritual musics. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that we can do that and it translates so easy means that the line is already close to begin with. Right. Or there's no line really. <laughs> or there's no line. Or there's no line really at all. Like, I'm, like, <laughs> yeah. Already there. When you, when you, it's interesting when you start to see it, 
it becomes really incredible and really surprising. Like the types of, in spaces that espouse really stringent purity cultures, especially Mm -hmm. if you look at some of their praise performance practices, I have a friend, Alicia Jones, who does work on this as well. Mm -hmm. um, Who does work on particularly male vocal practices um, and the eroticism. She, her book that she put out is um, flaming. Yes. And it's on auto eroticism and male gospel performance. Ooh. And how and why that takes place. Yep, read it. Listen, it's good. You just pick it up. Yeah, you're gonna have to email me the, the list. I, want, I need a list of books. <laughs> so there are people doing work on this, but that just means that the line that people are trying to trying so hard to institute doesn't exist in the way that people would like it to. Right. I don't think it's I don't think it's gospel artists or secular artists cross pollinating that's, that's causing any type of issue. I think it's revealing that the worlds are closer than mm-hmm. people would like to admit. Mm-hmm. So what was your and I'll go back to your work. What was the I guess the crossroads of you doing the research? Like like the, what was the question that arose for you that you was like? you know what, I'm going to research this and see what what's going on with the church <laughs> and music and, and all of that. Senior year of college, Oberlin College, I'm working on my thesis and Erica Campbell wears a white dress on her debut album. I remember that album. And I was and, like, why, why the gospel artists got to look all sexy on their album covers? That was my question, but inverted. So I remember the, I remember it became a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody was like, she can't wear that on the cover of her. Why would she? It's too sexy. Oh, my goodness. And I was like, why are people reacting this way? And that was absolutely what about her performance of gender on this album cover is such a problem that people are arguing about it in public space. Mm-hmm. And I remember studying and really analyzing the photo and being like on its head. Yes, it's a form fitting dress, but she's covered up. Right. Dresses, dresses, mid calf level hair is short out of her face. Very light makeup. Mm-hmm. It, are her curves this much of an issue that it would distract from the voice or what she's singing about? And that was really the moment where I asked my advisor, I was like, can I? can I do my project on this? Like, can I do this on gospel performance? And um, I think at that point, gospel performance and Kojic mod- modesty standards mm-hmm. was. And, and so I just want to say, and did that take you back to the day that you had to switch clothes yes. with your mom? Yes. Yes, it did. It absolutely did. Um, and I didn't realize that until you just said it, but it, it makes sense. It Cause that it, yeah, it makes sense. It took me back to a moment where somebody told me you can't perform in this way with these clothes on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as a curvy girl, what that did to my self image, my body image, my idea of what spirituality, what my belief in God was, um, is something that probably served as a catalyst for me moving later and looking at Erica, Erica Campbell and having people say the same thing pretty much to her. You cannot perform in that way wearing that dress. Never mind you, Erica Campbell's built like a brick house. You put yes. her. <laughs> I, I need to be on the on the uh, uh, elliptical machine. 
<laughs> you put her in a burlap sack and you, the curves are going to come through. Yeah. So it absolutely took me back. And that's always been the question. I've gotten a little bit more sophisticated in my studies since I've been doing it for so long. But at the root, the question has always been, what is it about women's gender performance that detracts for whatever reason from the artistry that they want to portray? Do you think it goes back to the scripture that says, don't become a stumbling block to your brother or your sister? People people use that scripture. People Mm -hmm. use that scripture often. But in my now interpretive lens and viewing how the church views sexuality, um, how the church views performance, I always I'm always thinking, you know, If you are such a good Christian, allegedly, why would a dress cause you to stumble? A dress is what did it? Yeah. A a dress. You're fine everywhere else, but the dress just took you you there. (laughs) Took you there. And I, I could never reconcile that with that question. And along with being able to choose, pick and choose what beliefs, um, what doctrines, uh, what theologies that I would like to engage in. I can also look at certain scriptures and be like, ah, I'll put that to the side. I don't necessarily need that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I can do, if the church can do that, all the th- church don't talk about the rape and pillaging that happens often. No, they don't. <laughs> um, if, I, if they get the choice to put that to the side, then I can put some of the harmful stuff that has impacted my youth and my growth to the side as well. Yeah. Yeah. So my last question what would you share with someone who's struggling with their faith right now? Mm-hmm. I would say first, I would tell you to sit and take some quiet time and think about what is really at the nexus of what you're struggling with. Um, there was never a faith struggle that I had that I didn't know what belief it was coming from. I might not have been able to articulated as effectively, but a lot of times I knew what was chafing up against what I was trained to do. Um, I would tell them that they are, again, completely able to distinguish between harmful belief practices and what their faith, their personal faith is. And I would tell them to really get around some people that are able to educate in a helpful way um, and distinguish between what can be harmful um, to their faith and and to their to their walk um, and what they necessarily should keep as the, something that's a core of their identity. Because for me, this healing doesn't happen in isolation. It doesn't happen without community. It doesn't happen without support. So the first thing is coming to terms for yourself with what how your own beliefs are changing and finding a community to support you in those shifts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. This was so good. I'm so, I'm so thankful that you, um, you came on my show. <laughs> I'm so happy to have been here. This has been really wonderful. I'm, this has been great. Yeah. Great conversation. Yeah. Well, we want to learn more about your work. Where can we find you? You can find me in a couple of places. You can find me on my website, which is amberdrumgold.com, um, which is 
it'll be spelled out somewhere, <laughs> probably on the podcast episode. My yeah. first name, my last name.com. Um, I'm also active on Twitter. Um, that's at Amber Lene, A-M-B-R-E-L-Y-N-A-E um, is my Twitter handle. Um, so those two places are probably the best places to reach me. Um, feel free to comment. You can get to me through my email, uh, through my website pretty easily. Um, okay. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, this this just filled me on a Saturday morning. I'm so happy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amber. Thank you, Marla. This has been great. Thank you all so much for tuning in for today's Meta Spiritual Talk. We hope that this conversation inspired you and sparked an interest in learning more about Amber's work and musicians in the world of gospel music. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at The Meta Spiritualist, Twitter at Metaspirit21, and of course on Podbean, Apple, Google, the iHeartRadio app, and Listen Notes. Until next time, may the God of the universe conspire with you, bringing you an abundance of love, peace, happiness, health, and wealth.